If you're new with us, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah for a couple months now, and we're actually ending it this morning. This is the, the end of a series. So I know you guys are super bummed, right? But <clears throat> there's a few things in this book, in, in this chapter, that um, really are interesting details in the life of Nehemiah, in the life of the story that we've been reading. And um, it seems as though the book sort of ends in a really anticlimactic way. And I want to draw a couple things out of this for us this morning. Uh, But let's pray, and then we'll dive in, read Nehemiah 13. We'll get going. Jesus, I just thank you for this morning. Um, God, I pray just for a settling upon our hearts this morning. God, I know that um, there's so many in this room that are experiencing so much. I pray, Jesus, that you draw near to us. I ask that your spirit would have your way in us, Jesus. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us through it. God, I know that we have a lot to learn. And I just pray for a humbling of our hearts. I pray, Jesus, that you would take hearts of stone and convert them to hearts of flesh. Give us soft hearts that can hear from you this morning. Open up our ears and let your spirit speak. And we just thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Quick recap. Um, in the, through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem for about 12 years. Prior to that, he was this cupbearer to the king of Persia. But Nehemiah was a Jewish man. He was, his family was exiled into Babylon, into Persia. Um, he had never probably been to Jerusalem, but had heard about all the amazing things about Jerusalem, the temple, worship, like what the people were like, what the city was like as a kid. And he hears um, years later as he's a cupbearer to the king that the, that the city's in shambles, that the walls are torn down. And so he approaches this king of Persia and he asks him if he can go to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall. And the king actually grants him permission and he funds the trip, the king does. And Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem to bring order to the city that's in shambles, this holy city, God's people. And so he, le- he leads these Jews to rebuild the wall that had been broken down and they rebuild it in 52 days. They rebuild not only the wall, but they secure the city. They reorganize the leadership in Jerusalem. They reinstitute worship in the temple and they bring about renewal and they re-up their covenants before the Lord to keep their covenant to Yahweh. And the last couple of chapters that we had read were them responding to the word of God as the law is being read to them and they're acting on the law. They're actually beginning to reinstate all that the law had asked of them and it seems like things are on the up and up. It seems like the, the people and the city are being put back together. It seems like Jerusalem is becoming the city that it once was and that everything that Nehemiah had set out to do is actually happening. But Nehemiah... He accomplishes what he sets out to do. He rebuilds this wall. And then we get to chapter 13. And this is the chapter where things just sort of start to unravel for Nehemiah and for the city of Jerusalem again. So if you want to read with me, let's read through chapter 13. Verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishib, the the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessel... brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? 
And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold the food. Uh, and I warned them on the day when they sold the food, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, forever foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me, Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Woo! It's a lot. I don't know about you guys, but when I read a book or I watch a movie, I want an ending that gives me some sort of finality or at least ends on a happy note, don't you? Like you want something that gives you some sort of sense of completion. We want closure. We like smiles. We like laughter. We like high fives. We, we want Nehemiah in this story to look like a champion by the end of the book, right? But it's not what you get by the end of the book. At some point, Nehemiah goes back to this Persian king, Artaxerxes, and he spent some time there in Persia, probably a few months to a few years. Nobody really knows how long he goes back for. But in Nehemiah 13.6 says that he's not in Jerusalem when these things are taking place. And so Nehemiah leaves and he's gone for a little while. And he probably goes back to the king to report what's going on in Jerusalem, to give him some sort of a report, to let him know what's transpired in the 12 years that Nehemiah has been in Jerusalem and been governor there. But while Nehemiah is gone, things totally go south in the city of Jerusalem. And, and it all starts to unravel and chaos and disarray. Like there's, there's just a dis, disarray that begin to break out and the people fall into their old patterns of sin and disobedience and they're sort of right back to where they started. So for 12 years, Nehemiah has prayed, Nehemiah has labored and he's led and he's seen all of these great things happen in the city of Jerusalem and he goes away for a bit and everything comes undone. It just returns to what it was. And up until this point, the Nehemiah we've seen seems 
really capable of navigating difficult situations well. It seems like he knows how to respond in every single instance that he's in. But in chapter 13, it's a Nehemiah that we have not seen throughout the whole book. He, he gets really angry. He has this outburst. He's like full of rage because of what's taking place in Jerusalem. And so the question is, like, what in the world does God want us to see in this passage? I mean, this is a difficult one to teach. And I want to look at three themes that, that, that we'll talk through in, in this passage this morning that I also want to relate to you and I. And the first one is this, is that things obviously are not as they should be. And things aren't as they should be with Nehemiah, and they aren't with you and I in life now. Second is that at some point in our life, we have to be a people that take action, that do something. And the third is I want us to land the plane this morning on this idea that, that Nehemiah was this, there was a greater Nehemiah to come. That Jesus in and of himself was the greater Nehemiah. That Nehemiah could only do so much that what we needed was a Messiah. And so the first point was this, is that we should um, recognize that in this text, things obviously are not as they should be. And as I said before, Nehemiah goes away for a while and he comes back and things have kind of become unhinged in the city. Um, things that were put in place that Nehemiah put in place and left all of a sudden go awry. It says in Nehemiah 13, 4 and 5. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And so imagine this. In the temple, you've got this massive room, this chamber in this temple. And in this room is where they keep all of the offerings that the people bring. And these offerings are used to pay the people that are doing the temple work. They're paying the, the, the priests, the singers, the, the gatekeepers, the people that are keeping worship going. And so the grain and the oil, the wine, all of the tithes are kept inside this chamber in the temple. Well, this guy, Eliashib, takes all of this out he, and, and he sets up a house for Tobiah within these chambers. And Tobiah sets up his home in the chamber in the tem temple. And meanwhile, in verse 10, it says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to each of their fields. And so now the, the offerings that are inside of these chambers are supposed to be used to pay the priests, the Levites, the, the, the worshipers, and so the Levites have no food, and so what do they do? They go back to their own fields, somewhere in the outskirts of town. Basically, their salaries have been taken from them, and so they go back to the fields where they could work, and they could try to make a living. And so you have no worship in the temple. You have no offerings being paid to those that were leading worship or officiating the, the priestly sacraments. And so essentially, you have no temple worship occurring at all. This is what Nehemiah came to restore in the city, and now all of it is defunct. And so the house of God is being neglected. And so Tobiah has his own room that he's chilling in, in the chambers within the temple, and Nehemiah is furious about all of this. And it gets even worse, right? Because it also says that the Sabbath was being neglected. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when the food was sold. So, they're working on the Sabbath. They're doing everything that Nehemiah had came and instructed them not to do. They were starting to get things in order and actually adhere to this Sabbath day. And so Nehemiah is enraged by this. Like the Sabbath was the one special holy day that God had identified in his law for his people. And on this day, neither them nor their animals were to work. They were to rest. And so the Sabbath day was a day of saying, like, we actually depend on Yahweh. We depend on the Lord. He is our provision. He is our rest. He is our hope. It, it, our hope is not in our work. It's not in the work of our hands. He's actually the one that feeds us and sustains us. And the Sabbath was a way of them saying to God, we trust you with our whole entire lives. And, and the Sabbath had just been reinstituted. 
And so that's what's taking place. And then the last thing that Nehemiah points out that they've neglected is marriage. So there's three things that he points out here. Nehemiah 13, 23 and 24, he says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. We covered this a few weeks ago, right? That the issue here is not race. The issue was religion. So the people of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, these were pagan nations at the time. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't keep the Lord's commandments. They were a people that didn't know Yahweh. And so the point was, don't marry somebody that's not going to keep the covenant, their covenant with the Lord, who doesn't know Yahweh like we do, who isn't one of his. Don't go outside of the covenant. Marry within the covenant. That was the goal. And God's people are breaking the law by going out and marrying people from pagan nations. Now, the question is, like, why, why is this so important? For us, this may all just sound like boring, but why is this so important? Well, why does worship and the Sabbath and marriage, why does it all matter to God so much? And why does it matter that all of it is in disarray? Because in chapter 10, if you guys remember this from a few weeks ago, these people explicitly said that they would not neglect these three things that they were devoting their lives to the Lord as the law was being read. And if you remember back, they, they, they said, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And then verse 39, we will not neglect the house of God. And so they, they explicitly make these commitments to the Lord to not neglect these things. And all three of these things, Sabbath, marriage, the house of the Lord, they neglected them all after making this commitment to uphold them. And so Nehemiah, after this short time away, comes back and he sees that all these things are being neglected. Like how could they say they would never do these things and then do them? Three chapters later, they're doing all of them. It makes you ask the question, how can they go back so easily on their word? Like I read this chapter over and over again, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, what in the world happened? Like, you made a commitment to the Lord. How in the world did you turn back so quick? But yet, for you and I, we often do the same thing, don't we? We, we commit to being the best friend, the best spouses. We commit to being the best workers. And then Monday rolls around, right? How often do you in your life say things like, I will never do that again on Friday, and then Monday rolls around, and you're right back into the same pattern. I mean, it's just like, it's in us. It's part of humanity, right? There's something inside of us called sin, and it just keeps entangling us and weighing us down and tripping us up and bringing us back to the same things over and over. It's like that proverb that says that, 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 that we're like a dog that returns to its vomit, that sin is just something that continues to eat away in us. It's something that we continue to go back to, even when we make these commitments to God that I will never do it again, like I'm done with it, Lord. And then two days later, we fall back in. But fortunately for you and I, we have this great opportunity to make progress in our lives. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we're being sanctified. We're being developed more and more into the image of God. And the problem is, is that it can just be a slow process with us. C.S. Lewis once said that all humans are alike in two ways. We know what's right, and we don't do it. You know what you should do, but we just don't always do the things that we should do. Because we aren't as we should be. We're not all that God intends for us to be. Some theologians say that the definition of sin is that sin is not the way that it's supposed to be. And I think that's such a great definition. It's something, sin is something that is just an obvious, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And we're not the way that we're supposed to be, are we? We're not there yet. But also, as we look around this world today, we realize very clearly that the world is not as it's supposed to be. 
that there are things that are off. Like you open up the news app on your phone and you read through Twitter and you see all the division and the chaos and uncertainty that exists in this world that you cannot spend a little bit of time on TV or on social media or in one of those apps and not realize that the world is off. Can we all attest to that this morning? That something is off. And ironically, Christian or not, we all feel the sense of something being off, that something is not right. And we all think, think that we, we feel this acute sense that things just aren't as they should be. Whether you're a believer or not, there's something in you that just senses that things are off. There's something wrong. And so Nehemiah comes back, and Nehemiah feels this deeply. Like what he sees breaks his heart because what he sees is the realization that what he thought was being built and the restoration that he thought was happening is actually defunct and things are returning back to what they were and his heart is broken. And I'm not trying to say that everything sucks in this world, right? It's all, like the reality is I love life. There are a bunch of amazing things about this life that we live. Like we get to experience some amazing things this side of heaven, a lot of joy and a lot of pleasure. But even the best of things that are on this earth right now still fall short at some point in our life. Like the best of things will fall short. They don't satiate everything that God created to be satiated in us. Your friendships will fall short. There will be seasons when your marriages will fall short, when your careers will fall short, when your hobbies will fall short, when your sports teams, most of mine, will fall short, right? There are seasons, everything will fall short at some point. Everything lets us down because it's not as it's supposed to be. And the newness of things wears off with things on this earth, like the adrenaline fades out at some point, the, the chaos finds its way in. But that's the reality, this side of eternity. And if your hope is in that stuff, if that's where your hope is, you're gonna live a life constantly feeling let down. Because you've put all of your trust and your hope in the things that will continue to fall short. That's the weight of sin in this world. And the curse had to be broken. But it's okay for us to lament the fact that we feel sometimes that this world is off. And so Nehemiah comes back and he sees how far undone things have become. And Nehemiah feels this strong sense to do something about it. And the second thing I want you to see this morning is that he acts on it. And some would argue that he acts really poorly on it. But Nehemiah acts on it. He takes action. Like once you figure out that things aren't the way they should be, what is your response in those seasons? For Nehemiah, it was take action and do something about it. At some point, we have to be a people that feel moved to action. We have to be a people that actually move toward brokenness in this life, both in ourselves and in other people. I mean, honestly, we do a lot of running from the brokenness within us. Whatever we can to skirt it and not deal with it. Whatever we can do to not deal with people that are feeling it and people that are going through, like experiencing severe brokenness in life. Like how can we just skirt it and get away from it and not deal with it, cover it up and act like it just doesn't happen. But that's not what people of God do. We actually get this awesome opportunity to move towards the brokenness in us and allow Jesus to heal that. We actually get this amazing opportunity to stand with others in their brokenness and be the people of God that, that stand with people, pray with people, seek healing with people that they can be restored and see some of those broken pieces put back together. And so I want you to see two things that Nehemiah does here. He gets angry and in each part where he gets angry in this chapter, it's followed up with this prayer at the end. Verse eight, he says, and I was, ang I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Like, I'm just imagining this dude coming in and just like wreaking havoc. Like, what is going on? 
throwing the stuff out of the chamber like he's ticked off. He barges into Tobiah's living quarters in the temples, throws everything out into the street, and then it gets even better, maybe even a little bit worse, right? Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah just starts going for it. And it seems even a bit out of character for Nehemiah. And the question you have to ask in reading this is, is Nehemiah sinning in this moment in his response? How do we reconcile Nehemiah's response in this? Like, is this how we're supposed to respond to sin? Like, you see a brother in sin, yank the dude's hair out, you know? Go in, clear his apartment out, throw all his gear out in the road. Like, we're gonna teach the bro a lesson, you know what I mean? Like, this is what we're to learn from this, no. The Bible is not telling us to do this. But the Bible also is not explicitly saying that Nehemiah necessarily sinned when he does this. And I think it's really interesting. The commentaries that I was reading through pointed out a couple of things. Uh, First, that the Old Testament law was pretty severe. And so you received pretty severe punishment for certain sins, and, and so your consequences were like pretty severe. Some say that Nehemiah was actually trying to exact some of this punishment on the people for the Lord because they had defiled his temple and their covenant with him. And so Nehemiah is basically doing for the Lord what he could have done for himself. Like he's just going for it. But you also have to look at the severity of the sin that's being committed in these people. For instance, with the issue of intermarrying with children, with these children from other nations, they couldn't speak the language of the Jews. And so, the, which, was their, like, which was their language, right? They, they, the, these people from these other nations did not know their language. And so the more time that they spent in Babylon, like in exile, the more they began to speak other languages and their native tongue actually began to disappear because they didn't know it or study it. And the word of God was written in their native tongue. And so how were they to know the law and the commandments of God if they couldn't read it and they didn't know it? And so it's severe. Like Nehemiah is realizing that this is a major issue. They can't hear the voice of the Lord even speaking, and they can't follow his commands, and so their entire entire religious heritage in his eyes is at stake as a result of this. And so most scholars and commentators believe that Nehemiah was actually justified in his actions in this place, that even though his response was severe, that at this moment in history, it was appropriate, appropriate given the nature of their sin. But it's important for us to understand why he's angry. Like, why is Nehemiah so frustrated? He's not angry because he was slighted. Nehemiah is not frustrated because something was done to him. He's not angry because his name and his reputation were going to pot or somehow damaged. He's angry because they've sinned against the Lord, that they've broken their commitment with him. And there's this righteous anger that's taking place inside of Nehemiah that leads him to action. It's why Nehemiah gets angry. Anger is not my go-to emotional vice. Anybody in here have that go-to emotional vice? Let's be honest. I'll have your spouse raise their hands for you. It's not my go-to vice when it comes to like my emotional state. Mine is more like fear and anxiety, just to be radically honest with you. However, The times in my life when I felt the greatest anger arise within me were mainly times in my life that were a result of me not wanting to be wrong. Um, There were times when I was feeling disrespected. There were times when I was feeling insecure. And so when those feelings arise in my life, like it becomes something against me and I can sometimes feel angry because I feel like I'm the one that's being, that the finger's being pointed at, that I'm the one that's being slighted. And even as I was studying this week, I was thinking about how most anger I've ever experienced in my life has been all about me. It's all Chris. It's about my name, it's about my respect, it's about my, rep- my approval, it's about my reputation. It's about getting what I'm owed. And this I would call unrighteous anger, anger that is all about us. It has nothing to do with the Lord, it's all about protecting ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 4, to be angry but do, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger is what Paul says. 
So apparently there's a kind of anger that leads to sin. There's a kind of anger that is self-focused. That, that there's also this kind of anger, that anger that's concerned with the things of God, that really cares when you see injustice in the world, this world, or people that are being harmed. And his name and his glory and his beauty and his law and, and obedience to him, like when you see those things being combated in the world, that should do something to us as followers of Jesus as we see his name being marked. Jesus being slighted as a result of the good that he's doing in the world, and yet people are coming against him. When we see injustice done to his people, there's something that should rise up within us. And this kind of anger, from Paul's perspective, was the kind of anger that actually moves us to righteous action, to do something about it. And notice what, De- what Nehemiah does next. It says that he prays, right? He, so he's angry, and then he pray, prays. And as I was thinking about this this week, Nehemiah's prayers, remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God or for his, for his service. But as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking like prayer is that thing that is often what the Lord uses to hone our anger to actually do good with what we feel. How many of you guys have ever been in a position where you've just, you can feel the anger arise and you stop for a moment to take it before the Lord? Like you ask him to hone it in. Like is what I'm feeling justified? Because when we don't take that to the Lord, what happens next is most of the time we act out on our anger and that becomes sinful. We do the thing that we want to do to get back at somebody for what they did to us and our anger lashes out and we take it out on somebody else. That's this unrighteous anger. But Nehemiah, in these instances, he, he addresses, um, first of all, he, he addresses uh, the temple and he cleanses the temple and then he prays. He addresses their neglect of the Sabbath and then he, he offers up this prayer again. Um, and then he addresses marriage and their covenant and then he prays. But I want you to hear his prayers. Again, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Listen to that prayer. He says, oh my God, and this is often something that I think we would just kind of read past. It's just part of the sentence. It's just a word. But what I want you to hear in this is when Nehemiah says, oh, my God, that what we're actually hearing is this groaning. It's not a word. It's a sound that Nehemiah is making from the pit of him, his gut. Like he's saying, oh, my God, remember me in this. Do not forget me, Lord. Remember what it is that I've done. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, oh my God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah's heart was to do good and to do right, to see renewal, to see worship restored, to see God's people walking in obedience once again. And this is what causes him to get angry. And then he offers up these prayers. And I think prayer in and of itself is something that tempers this anger. Like you need both of these to have really thoughtful action and engagement in your life. You, you gotta feel it, but then you gotta take it to the Lord and you gotta act as the Lord would lead. And the reality is that there's a certain kind of anger that is good and holy and righteous. And when we see injustice, just a brief tangent, we should get angry, actually, when we see injustice. When we see a loved one that's sinned against, that should cause anger within us. When we see the word of God maligned, like that should do something to cause anger within us. In fact, if you don't get angry about injustices and evil that exists in the world, like something's wrong with us. That should prompt something in us. Why was Jesus angry when he drove out the money changers in the temple? Because people were selling their items in the temple and they were disrupting the worship of God. And Jesus had a problem with that. Likewise, Nehemiah was also consumed with the zeal for the, the Lord's house when he cleanses the temple of Tobiah because he disrupted the worship of God. And so Nehemiah was consumed with zeal when he sees the, the Sabbath neglected. And, and Nehemiah was angry when he saw his people marrying themselves away and breaking their covenant 
vows with the Lord and chasing after created things rather than chasing after their creator. And in our day, what is it that demands this righteous anger? And how do you and I respond in a way that doesn't lead to sin? Because again, we should be angry with injustice. That, that men and women and children are being crushed under poverty and oppression as we gather here this morning, but it's taking place across the world. That literally, as we stand here this morning, children are being sold into slavery and, abu and abused for horrible reasons. That should do something within us. That, that statistically, one in three women in North America has been sexually abused or assaulted. These are things that I think we have in the right to be angry about, and that it actually should prompt something in us as followers of Jesus to want to see change and act on these things, to love and come alongside of and help support people that are experiencing these, these horrible things. But another thing that we should be angry about is even the abuse of scripture in the church. Like we should be angry about people that are dethroning Jesus in the name of tolerance in our world today. We should be angry about false gospels that, that present themselves as Christianity in our world, right? There's so much of it. Like, take a look at the religious podcast section on iTunes. There's a slew of it. You'll see how pervasive all of this is. And I wonder sometimes if we've grown so cold and so numb towards brokenness and towards sin, both in us and around us, that we've just gotten used to it. It's become commonplace for us. The, the things that we used to fight against inside of us and things that we used to wrestle with and be convicted about and the things that used to bother us don't seem to bother us anymore. It's like we're being desensitized. And so Nehemiah comes back and he's bothered by this. And I know we don't have the answers to everything and we can't solve every problem that exists in the world, but what we can do is respond. We can take steps to actually do something, and the worst thing is just getting used to it and being indifferent. Like, that is the worst place to be as a follower of Jesus in this life. Just indifferent to everything that's going on around us. There should be something in us that feels stirred up right now. Nehemiah sees this brokenness, and Nehemiah doesn't stand there. Now, were his actions totally right? Maybe not. I mean, yanking a dude's hair out is pretty hardcore. But his reasons for doing so was because the temple of God was being defiled. The people of God were being led astray. The city that he invested in and was hoping to see restored and back to its days of old was actually falling apart in shambles again, this time not with the walls, but with the people inside of the walls. This whole story for Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, I, I am just like, I'm constantly amazed by this story. Like, I could spend years just reading and rereading this because there's so much to learn in the story. But again, this whole thing kind of leaves us hanging. And, and there's this sense in which you want this happy ending to come. You're wondering when, when things are going to be made right. When will God actually get, get their act together? And the reality is, Nehemiah and the Jews did not know what we know today. This side of the cross, we look back and we realize Jesus was the answer to it all. And for these people, it was like, when is this thing going to be restored? When is the Messiah going to come? They, they needed to know that there was someone else that God was going to send to make this all right. And you and I have that answer. Listen to how Nehemiah ends this book. It's not the ending you want, but this is what Nehemiah says. Verse 30 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And then that's the end. And there's this sense in which you have to ask the question like, is this it? Like, is that it? Is God done with them? Is God going to come back and is he going to make things right? Like he confronts marriage and worship and Sabbath and then you're left with this question like is that all that God was doing? Is that literally the end of it? And the answer is no. 
Because what happens is we read the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, written about 100 years after Nehemiah. And what's interesting about that book is when you read it, you see the same sins in Nehemiah being repeated once again 100 years later. That they have to be addressed once again in Malachi. And so we know historically that this wasn't the end of the cycle, that it continued to repeat itself, that they kept on in the cycle of disobedience and repentance, falling back into sin, like they just kept repeating that cycle. And so you wonder, like, what is God doing here? And for you and I, we know what's coming 500 years later after Nehemiah, that God was gonna send someone else to them. And it wasn't gonna be just some prophet, it wasn't gonna be some leader, it wasn't gonna be a governor, it wasn't gonna be a teacher, it was gonna be a savior. And it would be his very own son. And the greater Nehemiah was actually to come. And not someone who would just lead them, but somebody that would actually die for them. And it's interesting that Nehemiah came back to the city after his journey away, and he came beating and subduing and cursing and casting out. Like, that's what Nehemiah does when he comes back in. But it's so interesting to look at the life of Jesus. What happens to Jesus as Jesus comes into Jerusalem? Jesus is subdued and beaten, and he's cursed at, and he's cast out in front of everybody. That pattern repeats. And the wrath that we deserve for ourselves, Jesus actually takes on himself. And so Nehemiah comes back just to put things right for a few moments. Like he gets the ship in order and he gets things functioning pretty good for about 12 years. Jesus comes back to make all things new to restore the whole thing, to make it new forever. And then he dies, he rises again one day we know that he's coming back for us, and when he does, he'll put an end to death and sin and an end to the curse and to brokenness and the fall forever, that Jesus will restore all things. If you're a Christian this morning, my encouragement to you as we wrap this up is that that is your hope. That's your only hope. In fact, what it means to be a Christian is that you only hope in this one thing, Jesus Christ, that all of your hope rests on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It rests on his resurrection, his coming again one day. Like that is where our hope lies. First Peter 1.13 says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is all of your hope. It's not plan B. It's not some third option. We're literally banking our lives on this. Like every human has to hope in something. Like, and that's not just some religious thing or a Christian thing. It's a humanity thing that all of us hopes in something. All of us looks to something. We set our hopes and we set our dreams uh, and our futures. Like, we, we find meaning and purpose in something in our life. And the problem is, is that it always falls short. It always backfires on us. I was watching this Instagram video this last week. I was like, I deep dove on something and I got onto this, like, this dude's, Instagram page, and he's like this life coach guru guy. And, um, and I'm watching this seminar that he's doing, and he's talking about his goals and his hopes in the last five years, one of which was building this house and the specific view that he was working so hard to create, and he finally got that view, and he's talking about how all of this had come to pass, and he had accomplished all of these things in the five years, and he wanted to know what his next dreams and next ambitions would be for the next few years. What did he want next? And I was thinking, what an empty pursuit of a house and a view that you would bank five years of your life on that? To have a thing, to have an item that you place your hope in, to have a career that you put your hope in or money to set something up as an idol in your life that one day will fall apart or one day you're gonna wanna replace it to be the thing that you bank everything on. And I thought, no thank you. But I do it all the time. I set goals, I have all these dreams and ambitions and things that I wanna accomplish that I would bank anything for only to realize somewhere along the way that man, you're banking a lot cashing in the cow on something that one day is gonna fall apart on you. How many of you guys have ever remodeled a house? 
man, six months of my life down the tube, remodeling a house, exhausted, <laughs> worn out. And at the end of it, you're, you sort of sit there sometimes feeling like, what for? But we do it all the time. We love to place our hope on things. And then when that thing collapses, what happens to you? You collapse with the thing. And then the cycle repeats because the problem is that you just asked too much of the thing. You were asking it to do what it could not do, right? You were asking it to give you the kind of hope and joy and meaning that it was never actually created or designed to give you. But Jesus actually came to give you the kind of life that will last forever, the kind of life that is actually will sustain you, that you can put your complete hope and your rest in. C.S. Lewis said it like this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I love that quote. If nothing in this life does it for me, at least fully, and all that newness fades off, the only explanation is that I was made for a different world. I was not made for this world. And Jesus came to build that world, to give you that kind of life. And there's coming a day when, the wor when this world that he's building, it will come. And I know you may feel today like that must be so far off and what I'm doing now does not matter. I know it feels like it may not ever happen. But he came once and, he came, and he's coming again. In Revelation 21, one through five, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning or crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That's what he's rebuilding. That's what's to come. That's what we're hoping in. And church, that world is coming. And in the meantime, we wait. And in the meantime, we actually hope. We trust. We deal with the brokenness in us and around us. We deal with the sin around us. We take action against and toward the things in, in this world that, that, that cause injustice, but one day this life is coming for us and all that you've lost, all that's been broken in your life, all that you've missed out on in this life will be filled up with glory in the next life. It'll all make sense. And so set your hope on that. And in the meantime, take action. Like, be angry appropriately. Pray. Ask God to move because God sees and God knows and God's working in these things. And so let's trust in the Lord. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to just end on one thing. Um, because there was a big picture piece of this whole study for me that has stuck out since the first chapter. That has just really pricked my heart since day one. And it's really interesting if you go online and you study like churches that are doing building campaigns to raise money for their churches, they almost always teach through Nehemiah, right? It's like, we're gonna teach through Nehemiah, then we're gonna ask for money because what we know is that, you know, this story of Nehemiah is gonna encourage us to be a people that gives. The story of Nehemiah is gonna be a, a story that, you know, convinces us that we all have a mind to work and we're all gonna pitch in and contribute and be a part of building this building that God wants us to build. And so we're gonna raise the funds and we're gonna work hard and we're gonna do it in 52 days. You know, like we're just gonna make this thing happen. But what's interesting for me is like, as I was teaching through Nehemiah, several people asked me along the way, are you gonna talk about the building at all? Are you going to use this as a way to spin off into raising money for the building? And I'm like, that's, 
far from my heart. And actually, with the way Nehemiah ends, that should be not even a conversation for us out of this story. But we do find ourselves as a church in an interesting predicament. And I want to share from my heart for a bit with you guys. We wanted to do this family meeting, but as a result of just not having enough information and knowing that so many people have questions about what's going on with our building, um, we wanted to just postpone the family meeting, maybe do it in a couple months when we have renderings and a real clear picture to paint and know exactly what we're doing. However, we own this building in downtown Coeur d'Alene. We've been working for a year and a half trying to figure out what we can do with this property, what we can and can't do. And, and, and so I want to share a little bit about that process with you guys because we've spent the last year, we did an engineering feasibility study to see if we could build a second floor. We've been engaged in this architectural feasibility study and mechanical feasibility study to see what's the potential of building out? What can we do? What's the maximum um, possibility, like potential for the property that we own? And we, we feel like we're on the verge of having some really solid answers. And we had a big meeting with the city on Thursday that went really well. And I think we're at least moving along and getting some forward direction. So again, we want to host a family meeting in a couple months to kind of talk through that and show you guys what we're working on and actually have something to get excited about. Um, another part of our family meetings is just being transparent with our budgets. We want you guys to see what we're bringing in and how we're allocating those funds. And so there's on that table over there, there's an annual report from 2022 and a QR code if you'd rather have it digitally. I encourage you to go download that, see how last year wrapped up. God was faithful, he provided, and this year, we, we've tried to be really conservative with our budget because we have no idea what's going to happen with our economy. And so our stewards have done a great job line-iteming that budget to make sure that we're honoring God in the way that we're spending our finances. And so I just encourage you to go grab that if you care, you want to you wanna see um, how we're spending our money and where that money's, uh, how, how much is coming in and how we're spending it. But here's the takeaway for me. And it almost sounds counterproductive when you're trying to raise money for a building. But as I read and I studied through Nehemiah, here's what I realized. Is the whole gist of Nehemiah was not about building a wall. And that's often what we talk about. That's what we know Nehemiah as, the dude that helped a group of people build a wall in 52 days. But the book of Nehemiah is about the restoration of a people. And it was to build a city for the people to inhabit, to be restored within and so many churches build buildings with the assumption that if you build it, they will come. That they put a lot of onus on a building to be the answer. Like God's answer to the church on this earth is build massive structures and people come to them. And that's just how the church moves. But if we learn anything from the book of Nehemiah, we learn that the goal of the book is restoration. It's the restoration of a people. The goal isn't a wall. The goal isn't a building. And I want us to keep that in, our, for, in the forefront, even as we move through this project with our building. Because we're blessed to be able to have this property downtown. Man, I feel so blessed to have this space that one day we can gather people in and they'll worship and pray. It'll be a place to bless the city from. Like there's all these great things that that building will be used for. But the real work is in people and not buildings, amen? And buildings, as we know, we're gonna build something that in 30 years is gonna fall apart or the next generation is gonna say, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. It needs different siding and different color paint. And if our trust is in that building to restore God's people, we're gonna be let down because the building itself is gonna fall apart. And then when the building falls apart, our identity goes with it, and then we start to fall apart. Hence, the American church for the last 100 years that has put so much time and effort into buildings that when the building campaign starts, it's like everybody's excited and wants to be part of it because it is the sort of the crescendo of church is to build this structure. And historically, if you go read about churches that have done building campaigns, and launched new buildings, in many cases, the church itself starts to tail off after the building campaign's over because all the attention was on the structure. And I want 
us to rethink our mindset going into this building. Because again, the work is in people, not buildings. Buildings are shells, but they don't house the spirit, do they? And who houses the spirit of the living God? It's you. And so we get to provide a shell that houses the spirit of God in his people, that amazing things can happen in, but man, that shell is not gonna cause revival. It's just not gonna do it. You guys are gonna cause revival because you're gonna get on your faces and you're gonna seek Jesus first because you're gonna care about the things that God cares about, because you're gonna take action on the things that God cares about, and you're actually gonna live out the gospel of Jesus on this earth in a way that honors him, loves others, and draws others to Jesus. Like, that's going to cause revival to happen, and so I'm super stoked that we get to move forward with this building and see all that God's gonna do through the space, but I'm more excited about the work that God's doing in lives lives that, pe- that God is touching, who find people who find Jesus, marriages that are being restored, people who get to hear the gospel, who are fed from a place, who grow in discipleship in a place, and it's the restoration of people that matters. And so I wanna leave us with that this morning because I know a lot of people are, what's going on with that building? Well, it's in God's time and his way. It'll happen. But may we not be a place that believes just because we get that, they're gonna come and people are gonna get saved because they're gonna get saved because of you, not because of the building that Anthem CDA has. And so wrapping up, concluding this whole book, for me, it's like, I, I want to see restoration happen in people's lives, real restoration, not religious actions, not legalism, see people on fire for Jesus. And um, I want to encourage you guys that God is at work doing some amazing things and you might feel like he's too slow, but he's at work. And, and you may wonder when that day is going to come, when all things are going to be made new and Jesus is coming back for us. It's coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. And I'm banking my life on it. And we're not gonna sell out to all the things that this world wants us to sell out to and put our hope in those things that are gonna just let us down time and time again because we know there's only one true thing we should be anchored to, right? Jesus himself, would you stand with me? I wanna pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your church, your people. And as we conclude this book, not lost on me, God, that there's a work that you're doing in our day. That I'm really excited about. And you're collecting your people across the world to praise and honor and worship your name, Jesus, to make you first and foremost in their life. And I pray for us that we would be that people that we'd be, we would be a people that would literally walk away from the idols and the things that we've set up as the goals and the things we bank our lives on in order to place Jesus front and center and say, all we want is you, Jesus. All we want is you, Jesus. We want your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we want the lost in Coeur d'Alene to be found as a result of the saving grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your work fulfilled on the cross, your body broken, your blood shed, your resurrection life and your spirit breathed in to your people, Jesus. And I pray that renewal would come. And I pray for us as Christians that we could get out of the way, God, that we could get out of some of the traditions and the things that we're steeped in that keep us trapped in the same cycles in our life. And I pray that we would be a people that would see you anew and see you fresh, that our hearts would come alive in you, Jesus, that we would be softened and we would be humbled and that we would fall on our faces before you, Jesus, and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Have your way with us in 2023 in Coeur Idaho. Have your way with us, Jesus. And so I pray for those in this room that have been crying out 
for a miracle, for God to do something in their life. I pray you'd meet them in this place, Jesus. I pray that they would not look to other things to satiate those gaps they feel in their life. I pray as we look around this world and we see just a place that seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket and seems like it's just not as it should be, that we'd be reminded that it isn't and that we are the flavor and the aroma of Jesus on this earth that you've sent to begin the process of making things right. And so I pray for us, Jesus, that we would carry that banner, that we'd fly that flag, that we'd run with all we have, we'd run this race, Jesus, and that we wouldn't get lost and entangled in the things on this earth that the enemy wants us so badly to just get wound up in. I pray new life for your church. I pray your spirit be breathed in upon and through your people right now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Let's sing.